Anxiety can be in the present moment or projected out into the future. It can be the sense that you'd rather have your desk placed so that you can see the door, or it can be dread at the thought of going to a dinner party. It can be global, as it has been probably for most people during the pandemic. That feeling of things are not quite right with the world, or overwhelming fear about job loss or illness or both, and wondering what that will mean in the future. Fear is a quicker, stronger, more immediate reaction to something, a sound or a sight or a touch, and it's part of being alive. So we need to know to learn how to live with it, use it and conquer it when necessary. Oh, the Oprah magazine, did you know it's no longer being published? ran a section in the June 2020 issue titled Fear Less with a number of articles about fear and anxiety. We will read some of them today. We'll start with the O Life Coach Martha Beck on befriending our beastly fears in an article titled Creature Comfort. I once saw an antelope being chased by a lion. As the big cat lowered his head to charge, the terrified antelope took off like a rocket, and the lion followed in hot pursuit. But as soon as his prey gained a little ground, he must have decided he wasn't so hungry after all, and threw in the towel. The lion stopped running and stood quietly panting. Once the threat had passed, the antelope stopped too and calmly resumed grazing. Peace returned to the savanna. For most creatures, fear works the way it did for that antelope, propelling them to safety, then shutting down until the next clear and present emergency. Only we humans have the dubious talent of staying scared even when there's no immediate threat. Danger might not be right there, panting at our heels, but we can't imagine it, and oh how we do. We worry about illness, violence, flood, fire, the prospect of aging, the prospect of not aging, global catastrophes of infinite variety. To be fair, the world can indeed be a dangerous place. Everyone must eventually face periods of great anxiety or suffering, as well as the at times unbearable knowledge that we are all mortal. The American Buddhist nun Pema Chodron writes, that one of her favorite subjects of contemplation is this question. Since death is certain, but the time of death is uncertain, what is the most important thing? When I quote that to clients, they look at me as if I just announced I had head lice. That's understandable because both mortality and uncertainty are terrifying. In American culture, at least, most of us would rather try to outrun that terror, and we do so by resorting to mostly dysfunctional coping mechanisms, obsessively Googling and reading the news, finding someone to blame and descending into toxic rage, or numbing the pain with Candy Crush marathons, eBay buying sprees, donut holes, or Chardonnay. The problem with these approaches is that instead of conquering or avoiding the fear, we put it at the center of, a of our lives and allow it to control us. To take back our power, we need to meet fear head on. This doesn't necessarily mean marching into battle or engaging in a screaming match with our belligerent neighbors. I ask my clients to do something much scarier than that, to sit quietly. When we're frightened, doing nothing is usually the last thing we want to do. 
because when distractions disappear, our fears rise up full force. But holding steady is the only way to tame the beast. Here is a series of techniques I've come to depend upon. Get still. Start by finding a place to be alone. This may be a challenge. As I write this, most of the country is in a pandemic-fueled lockdown, and many of us are ready to hide from our kids in the washing machine. If that's your situation, take a long bathroom break or wait until everyone else is asleep. Put away your phone. Then take a long exhale, like a sigh of relief, even if you don't yet feel relieved. This will help tell your biological fight or flight response that there's nothing to run from. Since most fear is about what could happen, not what is happening, bring your attention to what's before you. Notice five things you can see, four things you can hear, three things you can feel, two things you can smell, and one thing you can taste. Try to hold your attention on all these things simultaneously. Notice that you can handle this, just this. This moment right now is all you have to deal with. As you take in every breath, repeat, just this, just this. You really can handle this moment. See, you just did it. There, you did it again and again. You are crushing this. Surrender and allow. I wish I could say that quiet contemplation is a prescription for instant calm, but unfortunately it isn't quite that easy. As we settle into stillness, our sadness or anger will probably come padding back. That's because our blessing and our curse is that we're capable of abstract thought, which means that in times of uncertainty, we're keenly aware of all we could lose in the future. Our way of life, our health, our money, a loved one. This is what psychologists call anticipatory grief. But even though the prospect of danger is activating our fear response, we can't see that danger. Unable to keep an eye on the approaching lion, our primitive antelope brain goes into a state of confusion. Since all you have to handle is what's in front of you, the way to loosen the power of those lurking unseen fears is to do the only thing you're able to do in this moment. Let them in. On your next in-breath, think, I allow everything in the universe to be as it is right now. On an out-breath, think, I surrender all resistance to the universe being as it is right now. On an in-breath, think, I allow all of my feelings to be as they are right now. On the out-breath, think, I surrender all resistance to my feelings being what they are right now. Paradoxically, surrendering, surrendering resistance to painful emotions often makes them shift and even pass. The natural grieving process is a bit like giving birth. In a series of painful but productive surges, it pushes us through the sorrow and anger of loss. Ultimately, our ability to find meaning and peace is reborn. When we stop struggling emotionally, our rational mind comes back online, helping us address problems much more intelligently than we ever could in a haze of terror. Befriend the Beast Close your eyes and imagine that your fear is a wild animal, a wolf, a lion, an elephant. Really see this creature standing near you, wary but calm. Offer her gratitude. She's been working so hard to protect you. 
That's right. To a certain extent, fear is our friend. It keeps us from danger. Without it, we might drive like maniacs, have unsafe sex, or refuse to buy insurance, possibly all at the same time. Give your fear animal your sincere thanks and notice how she reacts to the attention. Does she seem more relaxed? Does she come closer? Will she let you touch her? Tell her you know she's tired. Promise you'll give her a rest. Notice the person who reaches out to touch your fear animal's coat, speaking softly, reassuring her. That calm, compassionate, deeply intelligent being is you, the fearless part of you. She's always with you, and you can seek her wise counsel anytime. The person who kneels and stretches out her hand to the beast is a warrior, a benevolent but mighty presence who can teach you to deal with problems actively but not anxiously. You'll have less and less fear as you connect with this aspect of your inner life and give it more freedom to counsel you. Approaching fear this way can set off a gentle revolution. Its power doesn't come from avoidance or attack, but from love. When we can connect with the wise warrior self at our core, we see that fear wasn't our enemy after all. We can move through the world with grace and confidence, our wild friend walking beside us. Our next small article here is called, This is Your Brain on Fear. Thalamus. The thalamus can be seen as the brain's gatekeeper, receiving input from all your senses. You see the killer's axe, hear the roaring flames, smell the clown's grease paint, and processing the signals to be projected to the sensory cortex and other parts of the brain. Sensory cortex. After receiving data from the thalamus, the sensory cortex further interprets the stimuli to make sense of the clues it's getting, then sends the information on to the hippocampus. Hippocampus. Named after the Greek word for seahorse, because its curved shape vaguely resembles the little creature, the hippocampus, which is key to storing memories, evaluates sensory data, data in the context of your previous experiences and current surroundings to establish the severity of the perceived threat. That fire is raging, but it's an inferno on TV and you watch TV all the time. No threat here. Amygdala. This almond-shaped cluster of nuclei scans the intense emotion you're feeling and passes the information on to the rest of your central nervous system, from the prefrontal cortex to the brain stem, in order to coordinate a response. It's the amygdala that signals the hypothalamus to have the adrenal glands activate your hormones. Hypothalamus. When your fight-or-flight response kicks in, the hypothalamus triggers your adrenal glands to release the stress hormones adrenaline, cortisol, and norepinephrine. This is when the magic happens. Your heart races, your blood pumps faster, more oxygen is sent to your brain, and you feel a burst of energy. Prefrontal cortex. This higher-level brain processing center, which helps you make decisions, can pump the brakes on the threat response if it assesses the stimulus in the context of your memories and surroundings and decides there's nothing to fear. Brainstem. Fight and flight aren't your only options. 
this part of the brain can react to fear by causing a response that makes you freeze and giving you temporary hyper-awareness of your surroundings. If you're well-concealed, say, hiding behind a piece of furniture, and can remain motionless while developing a plan, that homicidal clown is likely to overlook you and focus on the person who's jumping up and down, yelling, No, no, for the love of Bozo, no! Okay, that was that article. On to that uncertain something. And this is written by Gyla Lyons. After discovering what fueled her anxiety, she learned how to live with her fear of the unknown. My new therapist tells me that many people function happily day to day by maintaining a healthy denial of all the things they can't control. Until recently, I lived at the other extreme, as if calamity could befall me any minute. Anticipating earthquakes, heart attacks, carbon monoxide poisoning, and global famine left me exhausted, with frayed nerves, a body exposed to constant anxiety and stress, and a shortened attention span for work, relationships, and pretty much everything that makes life interesting and enjoyable. I'd felt this way for so long that when this new therapist described my condition 20 years into my treatment for anxiety, I almost didn't believe it had a name. Intolerance of uncertainty, IU, he said, is characterized by stress and uncontrollable worry in the face of not knowing what might be lying in wait. I'd never realized these could be symptoms. I thought they were just me. But there it is in the Journal of Clinical Psychology, where a study describes IU as a dispositional characteristic that involves the tendency to react negatively on an emotional, cognitive, and behavioral level to uncertain situations and events. Hallmarks of IU include excessive worrying, predicting adverse outcomes, overestimating threats, and performing behaviors that give some sense of control. Mine was counting out food in multiples of three, eating three cookies, six chips, or nine grapes. It's common for IU sufferers to seek constant reassurance from friends and experts, getting second and third opinions from doctors, asking flight attendants if the whirring noise in the cabin is normal, and they tend to endlessly consume information about scenarios they're afraid of, a trait that's kept me up until 4 a.m. googling elevator failures and eye twitches, and signs of toxic mold. It turns out that IU isn't just the result of negative thinking, but of biology as well. In 2017, neuroscientist Justin Kim and his colleagues at Dartmouth College found that people with IU have an unusually large striatum, the part of the brain responsible for making decisions and expecting punishment and reward. Those of us with panic and other anxiety disorders score particularly high on the intolerance of uncertainty scale, as do those with PTSD, OCD, depression, and eating disorders. In fact, some researchers and psychologists theorize that IU underlies, fuels, and links many of these conditions. Whether it's due to the shape of my brain or the characteristics of my personality, or both, this dread and fear is something I've felt most days. And when the COVID-19 pandemic upended the globe, 
it appeared that everyone around me now felt it too. My lifetime of anxiety suddenly seemed like practice for this moment, and the strategies I've learned to use to manage IU can help anyone function better in a stressful situation. Those techniques are necessary, by the way, because there is no perfect medicine to treat IU. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, and other anti-anxiety medications can take the edge off and help with the obsessive rumination, but not reliably, and there are common side effects including dizziness, headache, insomnia, and gastric issues. In my case, the most effective treatment has been cognitive behavioral therapy, which taught me to examine and dismantle my catastrophic thinking and curtail the negative behaviors I used to perform obsessively, like information gathering and reassurance seeking. The approach I use when I feel anxious in day-to-day -day life proves effective even in quarantine. Step away from the search bar. Call a friend, do some yoga, drink a cool glass of water, and listen to calming music. Positive self-talk can be very soothing, too. So I tell myself, this is a time of not knowing. It is scary, but I'll get through, the, through it like I've gotten through not knowing before. As my therapist said, what will determine whether you're happy or unhappy isn't how many bad or good things happen to you, but how well you're able to tolerate the uncertainty. For me, that changes minute by minute, but I've learned that the unknown is an element of human existence I'll never be able to think my way out of, and that tolerating uncertainty is a skill one can practice and strengthen, much like building muscle. I sit with the discomfort, the awareness that not knowing is scary and unpleasant. I control what I can, the rest I have to let go of in order to enjoy the good things in my life. In times of global crisis or personal pain, whenever I'm terrified by the unknown, I try to slow down and focus on physical realities I can be certain of. Here is my breath, here is the blue sky, here are the birds. And we go to an article titled Scare Tactics. These expert-approved techniques for managing angst mean you have nothing to fear, not even fear itself. To defang fear, rebrand the feeling. Instead of letting fear paralyze you, turn it into adrenaline to motivate you. If you're nervous about taking action, whether it's giving a presentation or meeting a blind date, Find somewhere to do a few jumping jacks, suggests sociologist Margie Kerr, author of the book Scream, Chilling Adventures in the Science of Fear. As you're jumping, repeat, I'm so excited right now, Kerr says. It will help rechannel your feelings, and the more often you do that, the more readily you'll experience nervous tension as excitement, not fear in the future. Find a friend. A social support person, a partner, best friend, even your dog, can really help counteract fear, says Vanessa Lobu, Ph.D., Associate Professor of Psychology and Director of the Child Study Center at Rutgers University. I participated in a study in which women were shown a symbol that meant that they were going to receive a mild electric shock in a few seconds. The ones who were holding their husband's hand showed a completely dampened down response stress response in their brain. When a stranger held their hand, that didn't help. 
take fear's advice. Speaking of friends, Barry Moniak, a consultant who focuses on fear in the workplace, suggests you start thinking of the emotion as one of your BFFs, the honest, on-top-of-it one who will tell you there's spinach in your teeth. Ask what the fear is saying, says Moniak. It's often that you don't have an adequate skill set to do what you're trying to do. And if you got a little more knowledgeable, you'd have nothing to be afraid of. Once you've identified the fear, taking on a leadership role at work, say, you can develop your skills, reading books or taking classes about managing a team successfully and getting to know the people you'll be leading. Enough to gain confidence and get moving. Invite jitters. A long-term approach to becoming less fearful, says Kerr, is to engage with that stress response, but in more enjoyable scenarios, trying different foods, going to new places. She points out older people especially sometimes restrict activity and narrow their lives out of fear, encouraging yourself to be adventurous and curious and pushing yourself in terms of entertainment or scholarship or activities is a way to increase your resilience and sense of competency. Both excellent attributes to have the next time you find yourself in a scary situation. To deflate worry, be specific. If you're nervous something bad will happen, narrow it down specifically to who, what, when, where, why, says clinical psychologist Ellen Hendrickson, PhD. That way, you can either figure out how to face the issue or realize it's not as threatening as you once thought. For example, Hendrickson says, people with social anxiety will often think, everybody is going to hate me. But when I ask them to get specific, they realize the concern is actually, oh, Darla and Jolene are going to be judgmental of my outfit. That's very different, and when it's expressed, then we can deal with it. Hope for the best, plan for the worst. When you're anxious about something going wrong, Hendrickson advises asking and answering the question, what if? This might mean, if Sam and I break up, I'll go on a long trip. Or to take a personal example, when I was worried I might get COVID-19 and have to self-quarantine, I decided that if I did, I'd stay in the study. It has a glass door, so I'd be able to see my kids, even if I couldn't be in the same room. Whatever the circumstance, having a plan reduces the vague uncertainty that makes worry so stressful. Manage your expectations. One thing that can make you panic is the fear of disappointing yourself. If you are anxious about going to a party because you imagine everyone expects you to be funny and cool and not leave any gaps in conversation, say to yourself, I don't have to perform. I just have to show up and listen and be interested in other people, and that's enough, says Hendrickson. Modifying your own standards away from perfectionism is very important to reducing anxiety. To disarm trauma look past it. In eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, EMDR, a therapeutic treatment that has gained traction in the past 30 years, the therapist has a client describe a past trauma, recalling the images, thoughts, feelings, sensations, and what remains disturbing about it, says Diani Laliotis, a licensed independent social worker 
and Director of Training at the EMDR Institute in Watsonville, California. The client is then guided through a series of eye movements, following the therapist's fingers as they move back and forth, almost as if watching a tennis match while recalling the trauma. This allows her to notice what comes to mind about that memory, while at the same time maintaining an awareness that it's not happening now, says Laliotis. As she re-experiences the trauma while focusing on the eye movement, the emotional and physical distress and confusion is processed out, and eventually it's over permanently because the way the memory is encoded in the brain has changed, says Laliotis. It no longer has an emotional charge with a corresponding body sensation, so the recalled experience and other memories like it are effectively neutralized. The past is in the past rather than the present, a potentially life-changing development for sufferers of PTSD and a reminder that just because something once scared you doesn't mean you have to be frightened forever. Expose yourself. Specific phobias are often treated with exposure therapy, confronting the dreaded object in increasingly intense ways. An arachnophobe might start looking at a picture of a spider, then a spider-stuffed animal, and ultimately engage with a real arachnid. It's very effective. 60 to 90% of patients who stick with the protocols see improvement, but it can be difficult to keep confronting your deepest fear. Kerr and a colleague are currently experimenting with flipping the script, starting with the most terrifying but amusing over-the-top version of a fear and scaling down. For example, says Kerr, we took a subway car, which is a common exposure for people with social anxiety, and using virtual reality techniques, filled it not only with people, but with zombies and other scary but fun figures. Preliminary findings show that starting with the outlandishly worst-case scenario that works its way down to an everyday fear makes that phobia seem, says Kerr, like no big deal. It's new research that bears out an old truth. Fear loses its power once we face it. Well, I think that's an interesting area of study, although it makes me think about horror films, which... I am really not a fan of, and so many of them are very much over the top, um, you know, including all those zombie films and those sorts of things, and with gore that's also a way above and beyond. Uh, however, they don't seem to lessen my fears. They seem to leave me in a place that I'd rather not be. Although I do understand that for many, many people, they enjoy horror films and seem, seem to get a lot out of it. And maybe it works the way this study is talking for them. Anyway, I thank you for tuning in to Sound Body today. Please stay well and come back next week for more healthy living ideas.